This week we continue with what we call Familiar Faces Week. People from the Advent, both lay and clergy, who do ministry uh, at the Advent. And we today will feature uh, the Reverend Canon uh, Joe Gibbs, the demon deacon from Wake Forest. Uh, I, Joe was a seminarian uh, intern for my church back at St. Helena's in Beaufort, South Carolina. Uh, we're talking uh, 2010. Excuse me, yeah, 2006, and I knew, uh, had a feeling right then he would make a real solid uh, clergyman. Uh, and so then in 2010, when we had an opening here uh, at, the, at the Advent, I immediately thought, thought of Joe, and we brought him, uh, brought him here to the cathedral, so he's been here for, for these three years. Uh, his, his resume is in the Lenten brochure. I won't uh, redo all of that. What would be something that you don't know about Joe? As a teenager, he appeared on Saturday Night Live. That might be something that you might know. He was indeed a, on a cameo spot in a skit there. A little, a little blurb. I saw it on YouTube last night. I was highly impressed uh, with that. One other thing you might know, and Joe didn't mention this is something I could talk about, but I will anyway, that I really touched my heart. He, he gave his wife... Twelve silver bells, little kisses uh, for a Christmas gift, and each silver, silver bell indicating a date that he would have for her once a month. He would take her to dinner, and the little silver bells uh, was a symbol of that. And last month, I understand it was uh, Arby's that you took her out to Arby's. That's real true. <laughs> Joel. <laughs> Joe will preach after we sing the first two stanzas of him, 498. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, per- perhaps a little bit unusual for, uh, for Lent, uh, but I don't think altogether inappropriate. I thought we would talk about uh, resurrection as we prepare for Easter, and we will do so uh, from using the uh, 20th chapter of Luke, beginning at the 27th verse. There came to him, to Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
For now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, have you ever noticed just how much information comes at you on a daily basis? The age that we currently live in is often called the information age, and it was dubbed so before the advent of smartphones. The dramatic increase, not just in the availability of information, but actually the onslaught of information is in exponential uh, hyperspeed. The vast majority of homes in America have both high-speed internet and uh, hundreds of available television channels. My home uh, is no exception. At any time of the day or night, you can watch, and I do sometimes watch, uh, sports, historical documentaries, comedy, Old movies, B-movies, reality shows, game shows, home and garden shows, food shows, crime dramas, live political happenings, or religious programming, just to name a few. And there are a plethora of news and uh, talk stations to pay their people, they pay their people very well, uh, just to give their opinions on any of these topics 24-7. And between these shows, you can see specifically targeted sets of commercials where an ad for engagement rings uh, will come right before an ad for a divorce lawyer. Or uh, ads for new credit cards precede ads for debt reduction services. Uh, The same is true, of course, for radio, especially now with the increasing popularity of satellite radio, which also has hundreds of channels. Uh, On the internet, you can literally, as you know, find out about any topic. You can uh, get uh, directions to anywhere, from anywhere. You can find out about nearly anybody if you can stand the ads at the top and the sides of your screen, which are also giving you more information uh, about where you can spend your money or save your money and how you can spend your time or save your time. If Facebook were a country... It would be behind only India and China in terms of its population size. Literally, millions of people host blogs, which are, of course, uh, just basically open diaries where the host uh, offers their uh, ideas, thoughts, reactions uh, to life around them. And then just about on any blog, you can offer, uh, you, you can respond with your own ideas and thoughts and reactions to whatever has been stated. The great thing about blogs is that everyone has a voice. The bad thing is that no one is listening. I attended a lecture not too long ago where the speaker suggested uh, that within this so-called information age uh, that we have gotten to a point where everyone's talking but nobody's listening. And he's right. And all the information that is thrust upon us day after day, uh, over and over, uh, over time begins to become like white noise, sort of garbled in the background of our lives. And whether we realize it or not, we, uh, most of us have become very skilled in uh, filtering through this white noise. We uh, hear what we need to hear or hear what we want to hear, and we tune out the rest. And we... 
basically know what we already think, and then we listen to messages that affirm what we think, and we tune out the rest. We sort of sentence it to the, to the background of white noise. But that lecturer's statement that we uh, that everyone's talking but nobody's listening, it hit me. Because I'm a preacher. Uh, my job, the calling on my life is to give information. And I began to wonder if the information that I give, the information that we give as a clergy team, uh, even this whole Lenten lunch series, uh, if that's not perhaps part of the white noise of information in many of your lives. I mean, I think that the message of Jesus Christ is the most uh, life-changing, life-giving message that there is in all the world. And you may too, that's why you're here today. But for us and for the wider population, what distinguishes the message of Christ from Dr. Phil or Oprah or the Dalai Lama? What makes information about Jesus more important than home decor articles or college football recruiting updates or a so-called expert's opinion on the economy or North Korea? With overlapping and competing information swirling around out there about the NCAA tournament, the Kardashians and other natural disasters, uh, insurance quotes, got that. Uh, tax loopholes, the benefits of yoga, gluten-free uh, diets, an endless sea of self-help gurus and their best-selling books. Against all of that... What distinguishes the Christian gospel? What, if anything, lifts the story of a man who died on a bloody cross 2,000 years ago on another continent? What lifts that above the noise, the rest of the noise in our lives? The answer is resurrection. The resurrection is the hinge on which the whole claim of Christianity swings. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of eternal resurrection to all those whose faith is in Him that separates and exalts the Christian message above all others. In this passage that I just read from Luke's Gospel, we see an interaction between Jesus and a group called the Sadducees. They were basically the religious liberals of the day. Uh, they certainly believed in God, but they were uh, very skeptical of anything supernatural in their everyday lives. Their religion uh, was essentially moral and humanistic. And as we see from this passage, one of the tenets of the Sadducees, um, apart from other groups like the Pharisees, uh, one of their tenets was that they held that there was no resurrection from the dead. And given their presuppositions, they couldn't find anything in the law of Moses that led them to believe in resurrection. And yet here was Jesus teaching in the temple that Messiah would be killed and would then rise again on the third day. So the clever Sadducees develop an impossible story, technically consistent with the letter of Moses' law, and intended uh, to make Jesus look foolish. 
From their perspective, whoever believed in resurrection didn't believe in Moses. And if Jesus didn't believe in Moses, well then he had no credibility, no authority to teach in the temple. And so they asked him, whose wife will this woman be in the resurrection, having married seven brothers in succession and died without producing any children? Another question isn't about marriage. It's about resurrection. You can see the gleaming pride in their eye. They think surely they've stumped him this time. But Jesus doesn't get sidetracked by argument. Rather, he instructs that God's plans are far greater than human minds can imagine. That resurrection isn't merely a continuation of this life, but our relationships with loved ones will be different, uh, being satisfied and fulfilled in heaven completely uh, by God himself in ways that we can't even dream of now. Uh, That even our bodies will be different, equal to angels, sons of God. And according to Jesus, the certainty of resurrection wasn't even a question. Because even Moses, the Sadducee's hero, had attested that God was not a God of death, but a God of life. Little did they know that the very man that they were challenging would soon himself be killed, and on the third day afterward uh, would be resurrected to eternal life. Now remember, Jesus had raised Lazarus uh, from the dead, but Lazarus had been resuscitated. That is, he had been restored to his earthly life, and Lazarus would die again. But when Jesus was raised from the dead by God the Father, God the God of life, Jesus was resurrected. The power of death's finality over him was broken, and not just for Jesus, but for us all. So that just as righteousness was offered to the world through his death on the cross, so now eternal life is offered to the world through his resurrection. And let's be clear, when we say eternal life, we're not just talking about a heartbeat and a consciousness that never ends. But we're talking about life fully satisfied in our Creator's presence. Life that is all about Him, but which completely fills us. There's no tears, there's no stress, there's no relational drama, there's no death. There's just life. And life to the full. The redemption of this world was achieved on the cross. As Jesus became our substitute, He took the sin of all who would come to Him in faith. And He gave us in return His unlimited access to the Father. But that redemption was validated and secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ as King of life eternal. So that we can say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. If those who are in Christ are a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come, it is resurrection that makes that possible. If Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full, it's resurrection that makes that possible. If whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, it's resurrection that makes that possible. If Jesus meant what He said when He promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age, it's resurrection that makes that possible. Christianity is not a self-help religion. 
In fact, the message of Christianity begins with the declaration that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to help yourself get right with God. And Christianity is actually pretty pessimistic about your ability to help yourself in any other arena, either in any sustaining way. Christianity begins with the extraordinarily unattractive diagnosis of humanity as sinful through and through. And so it follows that biblical Christianity is at no point of a a religion of what we are to do, but a relationship with the one who has already done it all on our behalf. And yet what makes this otherwise preposterous and even offensive claim not just believable, but extraordinarily freeing, is the fact that Jesus stepped out of the tomb on Easter morning. And if there is, in fact, any help at all to be had in this life from the truth of the Christian gospel, and there is, then it is only the claim of resurrection that makes that possible. So central is the doctrine of the resurrection to the Christian faith that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But, wrote Paul, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And friends, it is this promise of being made eternally alive, this promise of being satisfied in Christ, in heaven beyond our wildest dreams, the promise of freedom from the struggles waged by sin and the suffering wrought by disease, the promise of our resurrection through the resurrection of Christ. It's all this that holds the message of the Christian gospel high above the white noise of this information age. There's a really insightful scene at the very end of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. It's in the last book, which is entitled The Last Battle. The world that they have known as Narnia has ended. And there's a new Narnia, a sort of life after death Narnia, in which many, though not most, have found themselves. And the magical doorway to this new world was through a stable. And everyone, everyone there is remarking and wondering how the colors are brighter and the air is sweeter. And even the blades of grass seem to have more meaning. Everyone, that is, except this little band of dwarves, which are all huddled together sitting on the ground. And what becomes apparent to all the others Uh, is that these dwarves still believe themselves to be in the darkness of the stable. Though what's true about them is that they're sitting in this beautiful, wide-open field of uh, wildflowers in broad daylight. They're sitting there complaining about how cramped they are, and how terrible the stable smells, and how difficult it is to see. They can't enjoy all that this new Narnia has to offer because they are, in a sense, blinded by and imprisoned by 
and completely taken in by bad information. They can't imagine that there is more all around them than what they have right in front of them. And I think that that many Christians uh, live their lives like that. And I can't say that I'm not guilty of it myself. So many voices come at us in so many ways, so many topics, that we don't avail ourselves of the glory and the life of the one message that really matters. The one message that can save. The one message that can give life. The one message that gives meaning to everything else. The one message that offers resurrection because of the one who has been resurrected. So in the midst of the disparity between Fox News and CNN, in the midst of Obamacare and the housing market and spring break and global warming, and duck dynasty. It is the still small voice of God that is calling to our hearts and offering forgiveness through the substitutionary death of Jesus and eternal life through His resurrection. There is an awful lot of information But as we conclude Lent, with all its proper confession and repentance, let us look to the resurrected Jesus Christ, who alone has the words of life. Amen.